This episode, nay, this entire season, has been brought to you by Horizon Books, serving Seattle book lovers for over 47 years with the finest collection of used books in Cascadia. Come on down and mention UpZones as the register for a 10% discount today. Our sponsor is Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. You have to elect yourself, Jamie. Things are changing. Things are changing. You can't say it, but you know it's true. You elect yourself. Things are changing. You elect yourself. You elect yourself. Greetings, team. I cannot believe it, but we made it through a season of this show. 26 episodes, about half a year, and a pretty accurate capsulation of the group of interviews we brought in for the first half or so of, of a year of doing this. I am completely shocked that we made it this far, and I'm very excited to know that we've got more coming. We'll have a second season. I'm going to get married. I'm going to go live on Whidbey for a week or two and marry my lady, have a little mini moon, see all my friends, see all my family. Hopefully the smoke that anyone living in Seattle knows is completely engulfing our city will be gone by then and uh, we'll have a nice clear wedding. You know, when Michelle actually convinced me that I should start a show, I wasn't exactly sure what shape it would take. I wasn't exactly sure what it would look like, but I did know I wanted to have special folks who were changing the city and the region. I wanted to talk about how we manage change as a city. I definitely knew that I would get into issues like density and upzoning, hence the name of the podcast. But there was a lot of vagueness to me about what it would become. And it's still very much a work in progress, but boy, it's been a pretty special thing, I, I would say, from Sol Villarreal, the first guest we had, who Gave us some real great truths about the real estate market here through, you know, Stephanie and Marcos and Halima and the poets that we've had on, Ben Israel, Imani Sims, Shinyu Pai last week, who was absolutely fabulous. Uh, we've had some amazing civic leaders, Teresa Mosqueda, Brady Walkinshaw. Uh, I'll even include Bill from KUOW who we went and visited him. He was one of the only interviews we've ever done that wasn't in the bookstore. And we've just had a really great run, and, and I'm really pleased to have done this. I think it's been very special to hear that there are human beings at the other end of those actions that are shaping and making Seattle. But no episode that I've done has received, or uh, precipitated might be the better word, the level of feedback that I got from last week's episode, number 25. And with all with all due respect to, to Shin Yu Pai, who is not only an amazing poet, but was a fabulous interview, um, I don't think it was about her. I think it was about the opening monologue. This, this exact little rant slash precap, which is what I call it in my editing board, Precap, I pre-capped the episode. I didn't really do that last time. Uh, I talked a little bit about, about an experience I'd had. 
and uh, I, half the feedback was like real positive, kind of stick it to them stuff. Uh, another little bit was, boy, that was harsh. Small amount was like, I don't get it. <laughs> there was some of that too. And it got me thinking, I really did get a lot of feedback from people I trust and respect about why that anger was there. And so I started thinking about how one of the other things that I wanted to do when I set out to do this, just this radio show, was to present the people that were building the city with as people, including the ones we don't always agree with. Now, I'm pretty dead set against giving a platform, for example, to to bigots. I, I don't play that game. I don't do the forced equivocation of a, of a journalist because I'm not a journalist. Um, but you got to treat people like people. And one of the best ways to be right and still be ethical is to attack arguments and not people. So I thought if listeners would indulge me that one issue that continues to come up that has uh, really befuddled some folks who maybe aren't coming to this show as urbanists, quote unquote, or density advocates, who are just interested in hearing me interview, you know, Bill Radke or Brady, <clears throat> is why I am so fired up about density and urbanization and the concept of nimbyism and yimbyism. Um, and it really is very simple, and is that land use is moral. How we allow our city to be built, what we say someone can and can't do with their own land, uh, in as much as it might impact one's view or the character of one's neighborhood or the parking, etc., uh, really determines who gets to live where, what prices are, what rents are, how long you've got to commute to work. And if you can commute to work in a comfy car and hop on the 520 or the 90 and spew carbon into the air, which P.S. I do, I drive to work. Um, so this isn't a holier-than-thou position. But if you can afford to do that, it's a lot easier than if you can't, but you've been priced out of your neighborhood. And so you got to take a bus to the job you used to walk to. And that doesn't speak to the fundamental truism of why density is so crucial in our city, having the homelessness crisis that we're having. And I think it's worth stepping back and saying racism, race, class, they've all played a huge role in how cities are zoned, where they build the highway. We all know that. We all know that. But also... If you artificially constrain the supply of housing as the demand goes up, think of a city like a Seattle or like San Francisco for the last few years, you raise the price. This is economics 101. And we're not slaves to supply and demand. I'm a, I'm a fairly progressive-minded person, and, and I see it as the populist's responsibility as manifested often through government to tweak supply and demand. We can change the supply or demand of a good or a service as it benefits society. We can leave the supply or demand of BMWs alone because we don't need those. 
So if folks want to buy them, they can. If they become expensive, that's fine. Healthcare is an altogether different issue. That's why we fight about it so much. There's no such thing as a reservation price in healthcare. You can't walk away when something is too expensive, but you need critical care. And I would argue, and I'm not alone, that housing is the same. If housing becomes too expensive because there are only 10 housing units and 12 people want to live in the city, well, the 10 richest folks are going to get those houses. Now, the natural market response, and, and again, I'm, I'm more a progressive-minded person. I'm not some uh, supply and demand fundamentalist, but the natural market response would be, boy, let's build two extra houses. And if they're really nice houses, the two richest people will move into them. And if they're hovels, the two poorest people will have somewhere to live instead of nowhere to live, which is precisely the problem that we have in this city right now. The folks who enjoy the privileges, yes, I'm using that word, of owning a home, of having in many cases inherited a political legacy where they're engaged merely by the dint of their upbringing in the political processes of this city have artificially constrained the supply of housing. And you've seen all the statistics, right? Two thirds of the city's uh, livable land is zoned for single family housing. Another way to say that is that two thirds of this city make apartments illegal. And that is done to protect the quote unquote character of neighborhoods. That is done to preserve parking privileges for the people who already have homes. That is done to avoid quote unquote avoid congestion. But this city is changing. And so individuals who make the political decision to stifle growth, to stifle change, to stifle density and upzoning by refusing to allow apartments in their neighborhood, by suing or uh, manipulating bureaucracy whenever change is about to come, by voting against transit, by voting against taxes even that would allow the city to address the homelessness and the displacement problems we are facing. They are not the same, but they're deeply related. And by doing all of those things in an organized and coherent fashion, there is a class of individuals who are, by dint again of their decisions, displacing people from their homes, either out of the city, which robs the city of its culture, which robs the city of its diversity, which robs the city of its charm. I'll say it because uh, the NIMBY folks seem to have I uh, think they have a monopoly on charm. But it also causes homelessness. If you fight, if you have ever fought an apartment complex in your neighborhood, you've caused homelessness. You've played a role. If you've ever voted against tax that would build infrastructure, you've played a role. And again, this is not holier than thou. I've been there. But I think that there's this myth that we can be good progressives and keep change out of our neighborhoods. Well, guess what? We can't. That's what progress is. How we build our city is a moral decision.
My guest, Xiao Wang, is the founder of Boundless, a very interesting company doing work with immigration. I mean, I just really loved speaking with him about his own experience as an immigrant, but also just as someone who's got an entrepreneurial spirit. He's tried to uh, bring that to a few different jobs he had in his in his life. Uh, really great interview. He opened right up. He talked about his perspective. He talked about how, uh, as an immigrant, he still feels like he he's a Seattle hometowner because he's been here since he was a little kid. And it's funny he doesn't seem to mind so much about the changes as a as a child of immigrants. And that's that's an interesting point. But I think it's great to see. Um, someone just recognized that there's a, I guess, a hole in the market. And that is, uh, he'll get into it a little bit, but around information asymmetry, how many immigrants and the federal government are not speaking well to one another, and how uh, much better everyone ought would be in the process, government included, taxpayers included, current citizens included, cities and municipalities included, if we could all get on the same page and speak the same language. And how many folks, you know, he doesn't really work with uh, what he would call the end of the immigration process for, you know, you're talking about your family separations. That's not, that's not him. But the folks who live for years um, in limbo and simply cannot go on with their lives. And just how much better everyone would be if we could help those folks become integrated citizens and, um, actually contribute in a, in a different and more meaningful and more civic way to the American experiment. Hey, did you grow up? Where'd you grow up? So I Im was born in China and then I immigrated here when I was relatively young and moved around a bit along the West Coast, but actually ended up settling in Bothell. Mm -hmm. On the east side of oh, of like high school and whatnot. Yeah, so I went to I went to Inglemore High School out gotcha. here. So, uh, in some weird way, I actually see myself as one of the few hometown yeah, locals yeah, you're a local, as you right? go through um, <laughs> through, through the less certain lens. That's totally right. Yeah. And then I I left the area in two thousand and three mm. to go to college, to college. and then. So I was in California for a few years, and I went and worked mainly out in New York uh, and spent some time in Boston. So before finally coming back in 2014 okay. to a very different city than oh, yeah. what I left. I moved here a few years before that. And you, you almost, if, you, if change is like a hockey stick, yeah. that's right when it really started to zoop go up and all the new buildings went up in one part of town, right? And uh, Amazon really took the city over in many respects. and. You know, Soto started to change rapidly. Where where are you guys located? So our offices are in Pioneer Square. Mm -hmm. We're at Yesler and Alaskan Way South. Oh, yeah. So we're right, we're close to the ferry terminal and right up against the water where there is just, that in itself is a huge microcosm of change, right? Between the streetcar construction, yeah. the the new construction happening. I'm in a very old building and then mm -hmm. all of the different encampments and, and you know transients that, that uh, come through the area uh, and stay at different points in time. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens once they open the tunnel, drop the viaduct, right. and what's going to happen to that whole area. That whole area will be very different. I agree. 
You said you lived in New York. I, I'm actually from there. What, what did you do when you were there? So uh, I, when I first went out there, I was a management consultant for McKinsey. So I went into Never companies heard of and uh, no, just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> and and, and uh, pretended like I knew what I was doing. Uh, as well as later on, I um, joined a private equity firm in, in 2009, where it was after the economy had had, had taken a downturn. You got a job, amazing. Uh, and what was in Interesting at that point in time is that they this firm had bought a lot of companies and now actually was stuck having to run them as opposed to just you know ride the the upward swing and right. so it was a, a phenomenal opportunity to go and actually and you were turn around the organization yeah yeah um, the the other point that I spent some time on was working at the New York City Department of Education oh. where. I helped build and, and launch this new initiative there called, um, and forgive the name, it was it was the, it was really hot back then called the Innovation Zone. Mm. But the idea was that we were a public school system of a million students. Of those, about half were graduating from college, uh, from high school. Of those, half were going on to some form of higher education, and of those, half were graduating within six years. So if you take Graduating from some form of higher education as an indicator of potential future long-term financial stability and, uh, for, for these individuals, yeah, yeah. we're failing over 80% of yeah, our students. Right. And so what is amazing is when the situation is that bad, you actually have more leeway and ability to try crazy new things. And so I was able to, to help build this program that, that basically took ideas from anyone who's been successful at doing something similar around the world and say, come to New York, we'll help you start a school and we'll, as long as we can rigorously track results, we can see what we can withdraw and, and, we can and scale. Do. So yeah. we had schools that paid teachers $120,000 a year to schools that ran 11 months out of the year to schools that we blew out all the walls and it was just different cohorts and ones that used technology in interesting ways. How many schools? So we launched with uh, a little around 80 schools, and now, last time I checked, it was in the mid couple hundreds mm -hmm. uh, wow. of, of schools that are trying to. And you were part of the team that was that was saying, that must have been yeah. challenging. I bet so, there's some parents that really freaked out at, at the change that you were proposing, huh? It, it's uh, it was the combination of getting the parents on their side with the teachers mm -hmm. on their side with the you know, administration, uh, as well as all of, if you think of the education, unfortunately, in some cases is turned into a business. Yeah. And getting those people on our side, uh, it was a, it was a very Double delicate click dance. on that. What yeah. do you mean when you say uh, those people? Who, who, who would be someone? Well, so let's take procurement policy as an example. Right? Yeah. So in the beginning, you know, procurement... Uh, policies were put into place because there was so much graft and corruption in the system. Right. And so in lieu of people being able to hire their cousins or brothers or, or friends, they had to go through these you know, RFPs and different proposals. And this is exact kind of um, situation when you think of like other kinds of policies that that are, are trying to address something but have huge sort of unintentional consequences alongside, yeah. like Often rent control and, uh, yeah. and some, <laughs> something, some other elements like this, where in this case, you had to, everything was on three-year contracts, 
and there was like very specific SKUs, which work, I think, manageable for things like desks, right, or chairs, where it doesn't change very much. But when you get into technology, all of a sudden, I was running a program where I had to buy you know, technology for our students, and it was not like, it's like three-year-old technology at prices that were three times as expensive as what I could go online and order from. And, yeah, and it wasn't even good enough, so I had to not only purchase outdated equipment, but then buy additional RAM and you know, other accoutrements to make it actually work. And so at the end of the day, me as a mid-level bureaucrat was wasting a couple million dollars a year of, of taxpayer money on, on sort of these, these right. types of programs. And it became very frustrating as you think about like, the ecosystem of everyone is actually meaning to do the right thing and meaning to, to make a positive impact. Um, but because of the sort of history and built up of all these different policies, it ends up being a situation where the net of it actually was, was more negative towards. Mm -hmm. Right, I, that, that happens um, across the board. That happens in corporate America too, man. Yeah. You know, I have my, I, I've had a corporate day job for many, many years and you see, you can't buy anything without 10 uh, different functional groups getting involved. So, yeah. yeah. And that actually, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So you, you must have been a young guy doing all this, right? I mean, when you were at McKinsey, you must have been a 20-something, right? Yeah. It must be hard, right? I mean, I, I imagine, um, I mean, how did that kind of, the McKinsey thing and then also the, I think, working in New York City, how does that kind of humble you as someone who's trying to make big changes? It's very interesting because in the, <clears throat> the, the, the biggest learning opportunity there was actually when I transitioned from consulting to government work, mm -hmm. right? Because it was, as a consultant, you are, you are trained up and built to be pretty arrogant yeah. about saying like, hey, I know more about this company and their industry and what they should do than the people who've been doing it for decades. Yeah. And you show up and say, okay, here's the PowerPoint deck. This is exactly what needs to happen. Yeah. And if you don't do it, you're not making the right decision. Right. And so then the the minute you actually have to try to influence different groups and influence teams and actually make change happen at a large scale is the first time where I, you know, where I realized that how I approach problems in the past uh, would just not be effective for me to, to, to create the type of outcomes that I wanted. And so that was like the, the most sort of humbling moment where it, you know, where, like, I realized that, you know, in order to actually make a lasting impact and do something large, that the first thing you have to start with is that everything that is decided has a reason behind it, as opposed to approach it from the angle of everything that's currently going on makes no sense. It's bad. And yeah. Be bad. Right. Right. And so once you start saying, thinking that, oh, there, there was a, there were, you know, well-meaning hardworking, smart people who made this decision and you try to parse through and figure out, peel away and figure out why, then that gives you a much better angle and you, you learn a lot from just that process to figure out like, hey, how do you, whatever you go do next, how do you avoid some of the issues that happened in the past and how do you convince and, and get a lot of people on your side to be able to, to move the direction that you want. Mm -hmm. So... Then you fast forward, you, you yeah. came here. Um, what was it that motivated you to, to start? Well, tell me a little bit about your, your, your new company and what you guys are doing. Yeah, so 
actually right before um, I, I did balance, I was at actually I was at Amazon, so I was I was I was witness oh, front, I firsthand to uh, the the rise of of Amazon in, in downtown Seattle. Um, uh, but you know, I, like the 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 impetus for for boundless like started started from when I first came over. So when when you know I immigrated with my parents, my we spent close to five months of rent money on an immigration attorney mm-hmm. to do our green card application. Because and so they would have been you would have been I was how, very, I was I was very young four or five yeah so I and. Where'd you come? Where'd they come from? Which, which part of China? Uh, Nanjing. Nanjing. Okay. So what happened was my parents were exchange students, and you know they gave up everything to leave uh, China, and they actually, including me. So I was in China when they they came over, and then they finished their degrees, and got got jobs, which allowed them to try to to, to reunite us as a as a family. You stayed with your grandparents. Uh, I was with my grandparents and my mm-hmm. aunts, mm-hmm. and yeah. At that time, it's just like the, the the process. Even now, as I look at it, as I, I'm going to consider myself a native English speaker, even now, as I look at the immigration process and the paperwork and all these different forms, yeah, and, I still don't know like what's going on half the yeah. time, and I can only imagine how much strain and and and, and stress that my parents are in. Right. Um, it might as well be Greek. I mean, it is Greek. It's a foreign <laughs> right. language, right? Yeah. But but what's amazing is that like. You know, you, you basically spend your life savings on something that, you know, would drive not only sort of your life, but like the future generations of our lives. Right? We, they give up everything and, you know, we are now established now in, in the U.S. And, and the, the problem is, is that like this is uh, what, what, what I sometimes think about is how all of us immigrants take this difficulty for granted and I'm mm-hmm. what I mean is that like as I was growing up and throughout my adulthood as I talked to other immigrant families everyone complains about the immigration process and and it almost turns into a competition uh, of sorts where you get more props for the more difficulty yeah. <laughs> that you've overcome right. to be here right. you're like oh you know you think that was bad. Let me tell you what I had to go right. through. <laughs> yeah. And what what this levity sort of hides is the is a really critical thinking around like why is it so hard? And so th- that's where the impetus of boundless came from. Was yeah, I actually met uh, an office manager in 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 Seattle who spent twelve thousand mm. dollars on her immigration attorney for her marriage green card and had and had a terrible experience and geez i mean that ought to be the easiest one right yeah right. i mean that, that's a family that you're it talking is a about, family right? and yeah. and that 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 triggered my mind to say wow in the 30 years since i came over it, this process has actually gotten more difficult and more complex and even more expensive and families are now like faced with the same sort of tragic trade-off that we faced when we came over, which is either spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a lawyer or do it yourself with no idea if you're doing it right mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and sort of trusting your entire family's like future on like this set of applications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so as someone who comes from a technology background, 
I was like, wait a second, this is an information problem, and this is exactly what technology can do so well, is we mm -hmm. can take this knowledge that was previously just contained in the minds of two groups. You have the federal government, mm -hmm. which you know, deliberately or not has made things very uh, more opaque and more complicated. Mm -hmm. And then you have uh, immigration lawyers that financially are incentivized to be the uh, holders of this, this knowledge. Yeah. And we can take that information and make it accessible and available to everyone. Right, in a, in a way that's digestible to the communities that need it. Exactly. Yeah, got it. That's interesting. And so how many folks, how many employees right now? So we are now at uh, 18. Wow, okay, uh, growing. So yeah, yeah they, they yeah, started Boundless in, in February of last year. Mm -hmm. And then we released our first product, uh, which is for that, that use case, I just got marriage green card. So you are a US citizen or green card holder and you fell in love with someone who isn't and you want to either keep them in the country or bring them to the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so we launched that product uh, last fall and it's uh, turned out really well. People have felt positive emotions that they never thought they would feel before uh, as part of this. We, we now have over you know, 100,000 families coming to our website every month wow. for advice. We have Holy five, th over What's five the best thousand. story you have? I love the, these emotional stories around like where people before were saying, oh, you know, I would spend all my nights and evenings like stressed out about immigration and now I can actually spend it with my loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of, uh, one of the stories that I really enjoy this is this one couple that, you know, tried it on their own and failed three times. So that means like, they, they gathered all their materials, sent it in the government, was rejected. And then they had to redo everything, send it in, rejected again. Mm -hmm. And this happened three times before they, they found us. And, you know, we got them through the first time and they were able to get their green cards in roughly about six months. Uh, and, and it's like opened up so many opportunities for them now that they can work wherever they want to work and mm -hmm. live wherever they want to live. So yeah. people's lives are just being on hold, being placed on hold when, yeah. when they're in the middle of this immigration process. In my mind, what's it's incredible is that, um, or, or I wouldn't say incredible, what, what makes this work so, so meaningful is that it's never been so important as it is now to get your immigration paperwork done the right way the first time. Yeah. So there's a number of factors. One, wait times across the board are going up and we've mm. been tracking this around the country uh, things that is that demand or is that is that the organization that's doing the processing i would say that's a combination of both mm. uh there there's very little so uh there's very little transparency into exactly how long queues are and what mm. happens we mm -hmm. can only sort of extrapolate from the throughput at the other end of like how long it takes someone to go all the way through mm -hmm. and and the differences are uh, and it, it varies significantly by location so right so if, if you're doing uh, naturalization in Seattle for example the average median time is about a year a little over a year a year okay. uh, if you're doing that in Yakima the average time is about four months or so mm -hmm. so it, 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 it very much depends on location but across the board, it's gotten longer. So it used to take three months to get a work permit. Now it's taking closer to five. Mm. 
And so that's another extra two months that one party is not legally eligible to work. Right? And the, and the yeah. hiring company knows who they want to hire usually, and they can't. And right? a lot so of times, they, you, you're right, and you don't have the luxury. It depends on the size. If you're Microsoft or Amazon, you can, you can, you can look at it as a cohort, and you can por- you know, think of it as a portfolio. If you're a smaller company, you have this role. you got to fill it. you got to fill it. Right, which uh, means that even there, though, maybe the problem isn't delay, but I would say it sounds like the problem is they don't get their top choice. <laughs> Right, yeah, because in many they, cases, yeah, right. yeah. And then the other problem, so now, so wait times are getting longer. And then the other issue is that rejection rates are increasing. Mm. So we've seen roughly a doubling um, of, of like the percentage of applications that uh, the government uh, like rejects for any number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and, and that's pretty, that's been echoed from from others that we've talked to around the country, that this like rate of what they're called is RFE, so requests for evidence mm-hmm. or, or rejections, um, are going up across the board. And so again, it, it's sort of if that happens, it, you basically have to go back, get back in the line, and, and yeah. so it just continues yeah. to like delay delay your path. Your life, like, it yeah, delays your life. Delays yeah. your life. So so that was you you found it. You started about a year ago. Is that, is that yeah. right? And you. Um, so you came from Amazon. I'm sure you saw a lot of Amazon. I have one of my closest friends, actually. We, we joke she's back. We joke that she got deported because she had exactly this problem. Mm-hmm. And she was a Microsoft employee. And they made a clerical error in renewing her visa. And she had to go to Singapore for a while, you know. So it's just all over. And these are not, these are not politically controversial. Well, I mean, I guess if you're Steve Bannon, they are. But, you know, they're, they're, these are H-1Bs, right, generally? And So, I mean, H-1Bs are... They they take an outside source, uh, amount of press time because mm. uh, because they affect certain industries that are very vocal about this. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, there's only eighty five thousand or so H one Bs that are granted every year, and there are you know over a million green cards, over you know one point three million like naturalizations. There's like far more of these other sources, but all of them like face this face those these like similar challenges. Right. Right. Is this coming from firsthand experience where you're just like, you're seeing this every day and that's what kind of led you into this decision? Yeah, I mean, I would say that what I tell other people who are aspiring to be entrepreneurs now, now that <laughs> I've crossed my one year mark, so I think I've outlasted two thirds of startups, yeah. <laughs> um, is especially in this day where some, where it's almost a cool thing to do to start companies, right. is that starting a company is really, really hard. Right. And you only do it because you have to give up all of these other interests that you may have in your life, right? Mm-hmm. I may, you know, from, from family, from friends, from mm-hmm. hobbies, everything else. And so it only makes sense if it's some idea or some, some concept that you can't not do. Right. And so what happened was when I started diving into it, when I started talking to, I talked to probably a couple hundred families and immigration lawyers and policy experts before starting this. And I realized that that this was a problem that absolutely needed to be solved, and I could see a clear path to solving it. So it got to a point where you you could call it compulsion, you could call it obsession, you could call it uh, you know obligation, but everything in my life was saying, "Hey, you have to do this." Yeah. You talk about your parents with this much? Uh, I do. Yeah, I what, do. What's I mean, their take on it? Yeah, they they are. They are very supportive. They're obviously worried. <laughs> they, they keep asking how my financial situation is doing. <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> but uh, 
Oh, across the board. Yeah, I think I think they they see how it has. They've seen how I have changed how I approach problems, how mm -hmm. I approach people, and yeah, how how I think about uh, you know the, the the ways you you make an impact on on your community and on society. And so uh, overall, they're they're supportive. <laughs> That's really interesting. I mean, just to think about the track of you know immigrants and then what they came for economic opportunity and now they're so they're worried about your uh, financial uh, survival. Right? I think there needs to be one more generation, right? Because the yeah. first generation comes here, you're doing whatever you can. To, yeah, the second generation's got to make all the money. money. And then your third generation becomes the, the musician and artist. <laughs> right. Or, or, t or the startup guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How, how much has Seattle been influenced by kind of this change that's happening with immigration? And do you see, do you see any changes right now in Seattle around, uh, you know, some of the work that you're doing? So from from a local community perspective, I think we and in the news, like are are very much drawn to like specific outlying human stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know all these really tragic events that you're happening with that they hear about with family separation right. and for deportations and 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 people basically at the end of the immigration journey when it's turned into to a very negative outcome mm -hmm. what you don't hear much as uh, much about are like the, this vast number of people who are in the middle who, who are not at risk potentially for a deportation but who we talked about earlier, whose lives are on hold. Yeah. Uh, and that is actually a far larger proportion of people that, that, is, that um, are, are less prominent or less like, talked about because it's just status quo. Right? Right. So there's one um, pretty popular uh, immigration path for Indians that we just calculated recently. Uh, the wait time right now is 130 years. Right, so what does that even mean? It means that you, you will, you, you, <laughs> when you look at how many people are waiting in line and how many people are processed every year, if you're in line, unless you're at the front of the line right now, you will never uh, <laughs> you know, get this, this application. Right. Wow. And so you have like these, yeah, so these situations happening um, you know, pretty frequently. Right. About, like, right. um, but to, to, you know, as a whole, I think Seattle, and w what I love about uh, the, this this area is that there are so many like communities that are trying to do meaningful differences and make positive changes across um, each of these different groups. And so what I what I'm hoping for eventually is that 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 there'll be more you know, larger scale consolidated efforts across the and and where we can try to move like the entire the larger proportion of the people mm -hmm. and try to make a difference in, in, in a lot more lives over time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, you know, we end every interview with a segment that we like to call, if you care about, you should. Yeah. Fill in the blanks. So, if you care about the future of America, you should pay attention to immigration. And what I mean by that is over the next you know, one, five, 10, 20 years, what we do today with immigration will have an outsized impact on, this, uh, on, on where, the US, where the US stands. 
uh, the, for the first time in over a decade, the number of international students in the U.S. has declined. Mm -hmm. And of the students that are uh, graduating from, from institutes in, in the U.S., more and more of them are actually leaving the country to start their careers. And so when you, when you think about like, what that means to eventuality of, 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 the, of the U.S. and how competitive we can be um, over the long run, uh, this is a very important issue, right. especially in an election year, where you see what, what, what's really interesting about immigration from a political angle is that there is a central group of let's call it let's call it eighty percent of the immigration issues, both sides of the aisle agree, mm. mm -hmm. right? But neither side will actually acquiesce the other for the middle because they all want their their They're their ten percent. Yeah, yeah. And so we're stuck in this this zone where no comprehensive immigration reform, despite the fact that the majority of the American population and the majority of Congress are all in support of. Right. And so, you know, when a situation like this past year where, you know, a handful of votes could have tipped DACA one way or the other, right. um, it's, right. it's really critical for if people believe and, and are, like myself, very invested in the long-term you know, prosperity of this country to look at you know, how immigration can can have that outsized impact yeah. uh, for for decades to come. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good point, and I I'm just really glad that you're able to make it on. I know you're really busy. Uh, thanks for coming on, um, and we'll run a post. So uh, I look forward to following you and as you grow in the next year or two. Yeah, happy to happy to come by. Come on. Thanks so much. Take care. That was Boundless CEO Xiao Wang. Uh, check them out at boundless.com. They're doing very interesting stuff. And uh, if you need a marriage green card for only $750, which is much less than the $10,000 Xiao cited. Thanks as always to the Subcons for all the music you're hearing today and Anthony McPherson for the dope poetry sample. Thanks to Nabu for the sound. Thanks to Cascadia Underground and Horizon Books. I am your host, Ian Martinez, and as always, UpZones is a Cascadia Now production. See you next week.